With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the issues that you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarvey and with me as always is Duncan Castles. It's Wednesday's edition of the Transfer Window podcast, which means it's your questions answered. But first, some breaking news in terms of Carlo Ancelotti's contract at Everton. We understand that that contract is due to be signed on Friday of this week. He uh, has agreed a four and a half year deal, which uh, will pay him 6.5 million euros net per season. There's also a renegotiation clause, which kicks in after the first six months of the contract, i.e. in the summer of 2020. And of course, that is going to be guided by the fact that he's been offered a 2.5 million euros from, uh, bonus for Marco keeping Silva Everton was earning, in the Premier League. But it also reflects, I think, the fact the that um, the figurehead of the shareholding at Everton, Fard Moshiri, um, has been desperate to employ a big-name coach someone with pedigree, someone with reputation, and of course, as important as anything else, with trophies on his CV. Um, do you think there's value for money? Well, you're right. It's a substantial increase in what they were paying. Uh, the previous manager, Marco Silva, can tell you he was on three million net, um, and they have a, a substantial compensation bill in Marco Silva's case. That they, his contract still runs till 2021, they will have to pay that in full, um, i.e. they have to meet that £3 million net regardless of where he works, um, if he works for another club during that period, uh, unless he is paid the same or more by his new employers, um, which is a fairly standard structure these days, although a lot of clubs, Chelsea, for example, usually um, minimise the, the compensation period to a year rather than the full length of the contract. In terms of the upgrade for Carlo Ancelotti, that's also significant. My information is that his pay at Napoli was £3.5 million, uh, per season with a further €400,000 um, a year net for image rights. Um, the contract in, included a, a, a stage increase to four million net after the third year, which of course didn't happen at Napoli. Um, and, and actually, those numbers at Napoli are um, very cheap for uh, for a, an individual of Ancelotti's status, a multiple Champions League winner, a, a man who's coached um, and led some of the top clubs in European football. And I think they are an indication for you of. Um, one of the reasons why Ancelotti went back to Italy in the first place and, and made that kind of surprising move to Napoli um, after uh, his previous job at Bayern Munich. People didn't expect him to end up there. He did it for in substantial part because of family reasons, because he wanted to be based in Italy for a while. And I think Everton have timed this very well in that they 
they have been able to negotiate with him from that lower base salary that he was working with at Napoli. Um, your figures tell us that he and his representatives have, have got a substantial pay rise on that, which um, you would expect to do uh, talking with Everton because Everton have a history of overpaying for players under the current ownership and they have a, uh, a history of overpaying um, on transfer fees and on, on salaries. Um, but they have got this man who um, normally you would not associate with a club like Everton, certainly not a club like Everton in the, the state they are in at the moment. Um, as you say, there's a clause in there giving Ancelotti a bonus if he keeps them in the Premier League, um, which uh, is, uh, is a summary of where Everton are, that they need to pay managers uh, to keep them in the Premier League. They're a long way off their, their stated targets of qualifying for Champions League football. They've got a, a badly structured squad um, with a lot of overpaid players who have proved difficult to shift out. And um, one of Marco Silva's complaints as manager was that he had to deal with such a large squad um, with a, a, a significant number of individuals who he felt weren't fit for purpose and um, and complicated the coaching because they were left in and around the training ground. Um, now you have Ancelotti, who a lot of people who supported Arsenal would have liked to have seen take over at that club, moving um, to Everton. As we told you on the podcast um, last week, um, because he wants to be back in English football, was ready to work immediately and was ready to take whichever of the two jobs was offered to him. His preference obviously would have been Arsenal. They have decided to go down a different route and thus Everton have landed with that big name manager on their doorstep and, and obviously the hope that a guy of, of his status, experience, his ability to handle a dressing room, which uh, I think everyone who, who's worked with Carlo Ancelotti will say that he is a, a real uh, master of um, the psychology of handling players and, and, and involving them in a group and, uh, and getting the best out of each individual, creating a, a good environment in, in a club. Um, they, they'll be able to see whether he is able to solve those long-standing problems that have sort of dogged this um, Farhad Mashiri fronted ownership of Everton since they took over the club. We have a question from one of our listeners, Duncan Sam Keefe at Sam L Keefe. That's double E F E. Thanks for your question, Sam. And it is: Is Ancelotti finished as an elite coach, and how do you think he'll do at Everton? Duncan, I think what you've just um, said regarding Ancelotti's man management skills, especially with regards to um, how he deals with players. Um, is absolutely correct. He's not um, necessarily recognised or his reputation as a coach is not necessarily on the coaching field itself. Um, he'll be joined by his son, David, uh, who assisted him at Napoli, who I understand is regarded highly as a coach in terms of the technical aspects, but also by Duncan Ferguson, which of course is interesting, um, providing that continuity which Carlo has uh, seen uh, in some of his jobs, uh, AC Milan, uh, at Chelsea, at Bayern Munich as well, where he um, engaged um, different uh, people who had long reputations or histories with the club as assistants or certainly in his part of his coaching team in order to um, give him both the knowledge of the past 
and the present, as well as um, help him out in terms of uh, how he deals with the uh, very different personalities in the dressing room. Um, I think Sam's point is is a decent one with regards to his, as an elite coach, i.e. Um, going to Everton. Is that seen as a step down? Well, yes. But at the same time, Ancelotti is a very, very enthusiastic football man who relishes the challenge. And um, I think that's the reason why he's turning his life upside down to move to Merseyside and coach Everton, uh, with, especially at a time when Liverpool are so dominant, not just on Merseyside, but um, in Europe as well as the English Premier League. It's a daunting prospect, but one which clearly Carlo, despite his many years in the game and the fact that, let's face it, he doesn't need the money. Uh, you know, he's earned his, his, his living and his keep. Uh, he could easily just retire if he wanted to. And yet he's taken on a, a big challenge. Um, so I think, generally, Duncan, that I think, knowing Carlo pretty well, that this is not a case of him uh, simply, you know, going off, plodding off into retirement and a job that it doesn't matter if he succeeds or not. I think he genuinely will have a taste for um, trying to re-energise and elevate Everton into the club that Fard Mashiri and his investors have, have believed in and believe where they can be, which is um, a challenging force in the game. Yeah, look, he's not an old man. He's uh, he's only turned 60 this year. Um, the idea that he's finished as an elite coach, if you look at his Champions League record, he has just qualified Napoli for the knockout stages um, of the Champions League again. Last season, he was extremely close within a you know one kick of uh, eliminating Liverpool from the Champions League campaign that Liverpool ended up winning uh, the tournament. He is tactically astute; has always been tactically astute. He um, he's an intelligent manager in terms of being able to ha- handle the dynamics of of difficult clubs um, and and difficult owners. You know, he's worked with Abramovich, he's worked with Milan during the Berlusconi years. Um, he's been at Paris Saint-Germain um, under the, the Qatari ownership there. Um, I would recommend um, reading one of one or two of his books as um, they're, they're a fascinating insight into modern football and, um, and his managerial method and his thoughts about how management works. Um, in particular, the book Quiet Leadership is, is if you're interested in coaching and um, looking at coaching from a more technical level, kind of almost like a, a philosophical analysis of, of what a football manager's job is, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating read and with, with some great testimonies from both opponents and the very stellar players, some of the stellar players he's worked with during his career. Um, you have, for example, John Terry talking about Carlo Ancelotti being the best manager he ever worked with, um, which is probably a bit of a dig at, at um, Jose Mourinho, given what their um, history was during Mourinho's first spell at Chelsea, but also um, testimony to how respected he is by um, an individual with, very, with a lot of power and uh, and political influence within a dressing room. 
obviously an element of taking this job is that Ancelotti wanted to be in the Premier League again. He enjoyed managing in England the first time. He has looked at various positions in England down the years, never quite managed to come back before. This was a big element in his, his decision-making. And if you listen to the podcast we did on Friday with um, Aurelio Capaldi, you'll get a good insight into um, why he has decided to come back now. But I don't think, as you say, Ian, he's coming back for the paycheck and simply to be back in England. Um, he will want to make the best of this job and he will believe that he can do better than his predecessors and, uh, and take advantage of the significant financial resource there is at Everton um, with this ownership, with um, the, the, the money that's available at the club. They, are, they currently have the 11th most expensive squad in European football in terms of transfer fee acquisition cost. That money has obviously in significant part not been spent well, um, but it gives you an indication of what the owners are prepared to do to try and get this project to work as Ancelotti's appointment in itself gives you an indication of what they're prepared to do to make the project work. We, we did say he's a, he's a player's manager, if you like, and a, and a, and a very old-fashioned phrase, he's a man's man as well, which is probably one of the reasons John Terry um, holds him in such high regard. Two very quick anecdotes, which I think are uh, certainly pertinent to Ancelotti's character and his ability. Um, one was in the first season at Chelsea um, when they were ahead in the league but then got pegged back um, and they went uh, on a very, very uh, wet, cold night to Portsmouth um, to play a game there and it wasn't working. And the players went to Ancelotti at halftime and said, can we switch to midfield diamond? Uh, because we can get in behind. If we play with a number 10, then Didier can basically run riot in behind two quite slow central defenders. Uh, Ancelotti agreed, changed the formation. They end up running out, I think it was 5-1 was the final score. Um, and that game is definitely the one which uh, Chelsea players uh, of that season say was the, that was the change uh, and that's where they won the league was the fact that Ancelotti listened to them and uh, he changed his tactics on their advice and they ran out very comfortable winners and then they played that diamond formation for the rest of the season and won uh, the Premier League. The second one and it's probably one of my most favourite favourite stories in football is being out for dinner with Carlo um, and him talking about being a, a kind of, he was a very skillful player as such, but in an AC Milan team that had a massive amount of talent, he didn't necessarily need to extend himself too much um, when winning Serie A or indeed the Champions League. But um, they bought Marco van Basten, as I'm sure many of you will remember, who was a legendary player at the San Siro. And um, uh, Baresi, who played in the sweeper role, and um, Ancelotti, who played just in front, went to... Um, uh, Van Basten and, and asked him, where do you like the ball? Do you want it into feet? Do you want it on, on the channel? Do you want it? We're, just tell us and we'll, we'll put the ball wherever you need it to be for, in order to facilitate your skills. And uh, Van Basten said to them, just hit me with the ball. And when you do, turn away and start celebrating because I will have scored. <laughs> you got to love that. <laughs> so, 
Uh, again, your questions answered today on the Transfer Window podcast, and we do have a very interesting one as well um, from one of our listeners, Trevor Moyaki, who's at Trevi7. And he says, Duncan, Pep Guardiola, as a former player, became successful at Barcelona with relatively little experience. Some clubs in England seem to be following that model with the appointment of your Oles, your Lundbergs, your Lampards, and soon to be Mikel Arteta. But isn't Pep the exception rather than the rule? I mean, Pep didn't have to do a rebuilding job. He inherited a powerful team from Rijkaard. The same could be said about Zidane at Real Madrid. He also inherited a powerful team in his first stint at the club. Sorry, that was Zidane, obviously. Should inexperienced former players be trusted with jobs of this magnitude? Look, I, I, think, I think this is a very good point. I think it is a trend in football in the Premier League at present. And I've talked to coaches, um, you know, established coaches in the game who, who have commented on this, that um, at present, it seems that uh, the name um, is more important. The story behind uh, a name is more important than their actual ability or demonstrated ability to coach. Um, I'd say that Solskjaer, Lundberg, Lampard, Arteta, they all fit into that mould. Solskjaer's obviously a different case because he's not inexperienced. Solskjaer's been managing for nine years. Um, that's when he had his first appointment as a, as a first-team manager in Norway. So he has plenty of experience in management. But um, Trevor's point that, uh, that he has got the job because of his name and his association with the club is absolutely right. And, you know, we've talked in the podcast at length about the problems that's caused for Manchester United. You look at the, the statistics in terms of results, they very much indicate that it was the wrong appointment. The latest one being that they've now gone 12 Premier League games without a clean sheet, which is the Manchester United's longest run without a clean sheet in the league for almost half a century, despite having spent... Um, record transfer fees for both a fullback and a centre back in the, in the summer. Um, I think also there's no question that Frank Lampard wouldn't be Chelsea manager if it wasn't for his association with Chelsea. And um, that he said that himself, Duncan. He said that himself. Yeah, and that that history becomes important for selling the appointment club. You you look at what Chelsea did and the situation they were in. Um, not being able to sign players in the transfer window, cleverly um, going down a route of, of using their academy players and giving them that chance to, to play in the first team for the first time with the excuse, if you like, or the argument that, well, we couldn't do anything else, so we have to go this way. And, and in Lampard, they got a guy who, who could, they could not only just sell that story to the fans and, and have a degree of tolerance from the fans because of his, his history and his service for the club. They also managed to bring a manager who had been working with a lot of these players and who his assistant had, had worked with them um, a far greater level at, at Chelsea Academy level and, and was prepared to promote. So it was an intelligent appointment in that regard, but also a risky appointment in the sense that you're, you're bringing people in who haven't been in charge of a club of that level before and are to a, a very obvious degree learning on the job and 
one of the elements in which Lampard is learning on the job is the transfer market. And he, he's also talked about that on record, saying you know, it, was, it was probably an aid for him that he wasn't able to buy in the summer window because he didn't have to deal with the, the, the time consumption and the, the politics and the difficulties and the pressures of deciding um, which players should be brought in and how they should be integrated into the squad. But now that's removed and he does have to deal with it. Um, and you know, ideally, if you're at a club of that level, do you want to have someone learning on the job? Obviously, you don't. Um, and when you bring someone in to learn on the job, there's a degree of risk involved. Arteta has been coaching for just over three years. He's been an assistant for just over three years. Arsenal are definitely taking a risk by making him their preferred appointee. Um, and waiting to see if he will agree to take that job. Again, you see a club that it faces a difficult situation with a lot of discontent from the supporters. Um, and Arteta has a history with the club. He's a popular figure. He's a name that goes down well with a, a large number of those supporters. Arsenal, I, I see, are now selling a line that they need to bring in more figures who understand the history of the club um, to be involved in the running of the team and that uh, obviously Mikel Arteta is a, a player who worked under Wenger, was very much um, appreciated by Wenger and promoted for his, um, his tactical and football intelligence as well as his ability to play on the field. Therefore, it, it fits that story of, okay, we've We've had problems over these first two years without Arsene Wenger. Um, let's bring an Arsenal uh, man in to solve those issues. If you, if you ask people how Arteta is an assistant coach, he is very highly regarded by Pep Guardiola, and Guardiola has been open in saying um, that he sees him already as a manager and, and fully expects him to become a manager and won't stand in his way when he... Uh, when he chooses to leave the club. Um, other people, Raheem Sterling, for example, have credited Arteta um, with his one-on-one -on -one coaching um, and the way he has helped Sterling improve as a finisher and as a creator of goals on the pitch and being more effective in his uh, decision-making in the key areas of the game. And, and actually, that's an area you would expect a player of Arteta's technical abilities to have an advantage as a, um, as a full-time uh, manager of a, of a Premier League team. Um, and would have, you'd expect him to have an advantage over someone like Jose Mourinho, for example, who was never a high-level player because he has better, had better technical abilities as a player. Um, and assuming he developed those technical abilities from hard work on the training field, so made himself into a better player um, through his work on the training ground, that's something that's very easy for him to transmit to individual players he's coaching. But there's a whole other side of the job, which is being the front man for the club, being the voice of the club, being under pressure um, multiple times a week in press conferences, to explain what's going on, what you want to happen, what went wrong, what the overall plan is. Um, there is the being the senior figure for the football department, the man who, with whom the buck stops when the multitude of problems that occur within a football team 
occur? And can you handle that side of it? Um, is he tactically astute enough to make set up plans for games and also change those plans during games? All of those things have to be proven actually in the heat of battle when he is in charge of the side. And um, yeah, there's no other way to look at it than it being a risk. And I think Trevor also makes a very good point here about Pep Guardiola, who you know you, you, you can't question his abilities as a manager and his achievements as a manager. But he did come into a incredible dressing room. Um, you know, I've talked to a lot of people in football who will argue that the, the team that Pep Guardiola inherited at Barcelona when he made the step up from Barcelona B was the most talented, technically talented football squad that any manager has ever had. He promoted well by taking Sergio Busquets from his B team and putting Lionel Messi in the first team. He improved the quality of the play and, and produced an incredible run of results, um, winning two Champions League titles there. But I think Trevor's point is accurate. It was a good platform in which for him to work. It was the club he knew um, from his tuition as a football player. He was implementing the methodology that he had been taught by Johan Cruyff and, uh, and modernising that methodology for a new era with players who had been trained in the Cruyff methodology. So it's if you're going to promote one of these younger and experienced coaches into a role, then and it's going to be at a big club, that was probably close to the imperfect environment to do it in. And when you look at Freddie Lundberg, who has already been dispensed with by Arsenal, when you look at Solskjaer, who has come into one of the hardest jobs to manage in world football, you look at Frank Lampard coming into Chelsea, which has very little tolerance for managers at the best of times and is not the financial powerhouse it used to be, and you look at Arteta now coming back to try and solve those problems that have been caused at, by the end of the Arsene Wenger era, by the rebuilding of the stadium at Arsenal, by the, the massive changes in hierarchy at Arsenal. That's not a simple platform to come into. And therefore, you have to say it is a risk that Arsenal are, are taking in moving, swinging from the, the, the experienced European appointment of Unai Emery to um, a very inexperienced coach who has never managed before. It's a trend we see often, Duncan, uh, that clubs go from one extreme to the other. I'm reminded of the old Peter Snow swingometer, which has certainly swung uh, in terms of the appointments at uh, Everton and uh, impending at Arsenal as well. One of the mysteries, it has to be said, of the season so far as we approach the halfway point in the Premier League season has been the strange absence of Paul Pogba, who has made just six appearances for Manchester United so far in all competitions. Um, as we have reported, he has um, been off on his rehabilitation stroke holiday tour to um, Dubai and Miami. Um, has yet to be seen at Manchester's training ground after his brother's wedding, in which he took ill, and uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer uh, seemed quite almost despondent um, when asked about it uh, and saying that, well, yeah, he's recovered from injury, but now he's ill and we don't know when he's going to be back. 
Um, one of our listeners at Sofa Soldatin has asked us quite simply, what is the situation regarding Paul Pogba, Duncan? What do we know? What has maybe become more apparent in the last two to three weeks about Pogba and what his intentions are um, with regards to Manchester United or possibly moving in January? What we know is that Paul Pogba wants to leave Manchester United. He's not happy at the club. His agent has been agitating for a move away from the club for years now, in the second season at Manchester United. He was actively um, offering the player around the, the most moneyed clubs in Europe, asking if they'd be interested in buying him and included on his, uh, his salesman's list Manchester City. Um, which is an extraordinary thing to do when you're you're talking about Manchester United's most expensive ever acquisition and a player that Manchester United, the Glazers, Ed Woodward have so had so much invested in. The Manchester United manager Jose Mourinho had so much invested in because he was and remains the most expensive signing of his managerial career. And um, clearly, um, the way that signing has turned out it has been a failure. Um, for all parties, for Mourinho, for Manchester United and for Pogba. Um, Pogba last played a game for Manchester United in September. Um, in early October, Didier Deschamps was asked about Pogba's absence from the French national team, said he had an ankle injury and would be out for three weeks. It's now halfway through December and Pogba, although he has returned to training, as you say, um, was given leave of absence to go to his brother's wedding last uh, Friday, was um, dancing at his brother's wedding party. And then when it came to the latest Solskjaer press conference, he uh, had to announce when asked about Pogba's potential return that, of all things, he struck down ill now. Um, and he went on to say, we just need to get him fit and match fit. It might be half an hour, 45, 60, 90 minutes. Who knows? The first game, we're working hard to get him back. But now he's ill. Um, as we've discussed in the podcast previously, Pogba spent most of his rehabilitation time from the ankle injury um, that he picked up earlier in the season, which he was brought back from to play in a League Cup tie against Rochdale um, in which Solskjaer snubbed him for the captaincy and gave it to um, Axel Tuenzebi who was making one of his first senior starts for the club instead um, and which uh, the match went to penalties and Paul Pogba one of the, the club's designated penalty kick takers didn't take a penalty um, he then played against Arsenal the following match and that is the end of it for Pogba this season. So Manchester United have got six games out of their most expensive player um, in this entire season so far. If it was Pogba's choice, that would almost be the end of his time at Manchester United. If he had the opportunity to leave in January, if he has the opportunity to leave in January, it's clear he will push to make the move elsewhere. There are multiple reasons for this, but I think financial is a big one. His representation by Mino Raiola, who has always encouraged his players to make moves if he sees that um, there is a, another large commission to be taken from the move, is another. 
And I think the, the state of Manchester United is, is probably the most significant one. We know Paul Pogba regards himself as one of the best footballers on the planet. We know his ambition is to be perceived as being the best footballer on the planet, to win a Ballon d'Or, um, to win a FIFA World Player of the Year award. It's not unreasonable for him to calculate that that is impossible as things stand at Manchester United. Um, you don't win a Ballon d'Or playing for a team that isn't even qualified for the Champions League and is completely uncompetitive for the Premier League. Manchester United's stated on-record position is that they do not expect to be competitive for either of those uh, major tournaments, the two most important tournaments they play for, for at least another couple of seasons. So it's not surprising then that he calculates that it's not the best place for him to be in the what should be the peak years of his career. Um, what is interesting is the relationship with Sol between Solskjaer and Pogba. Solskjaer benefited from the change of management in terms of getting the best performances of Pogba's time at Manchester United um, for um, some months. Pogba wanted to prove a point to the previous manager and uh, in those early weeks under Solskjaer, he uh, scored goals, created goals. He put a huge amount of effort in the pitch to ensure that the games were won. Um, he looked like the player we all know he is capable of being. That performance has dropped off. Um, and Solskjaer had a lot invested in Pogba in terms of building a squad and allowing the squad to be left in a, in a state for this season in which Pogba was essentially the only um, properly creative midfielder he had in the team, experienced midfielder he had in the squad, and he's been left without him. The, the question then you have to ask is, if a decision is put in the January window to Willie Gunnar Solskjaer by Manchester United that we have an offer from for example, Real Madrid um, for Paul Pogba, which doesn't match our 160 million euro um, stated asking price, but is in that general direction. What do you think about letting him go? Question is whether Solskjaer will say, yeah, it's time to cut our losses on this player, or whether he'll go back to Pogba and try and make him central to the team again and convince him that he is the most important player for him and convince himself, Willie Gunnar Solskjaer, that he will be able to get the level of performance from Pogba that uh, that merits retaining him at the club. I do think it's, a, it's an ongoing sore for Manchester United with regards to uh, both Pogba's attitude as well as this mysterious injury, which, as you rightly said, Duncan, um, was allegedly going to be three weeks uh, in the healing, um, according to his international manager, Didier Deschamps, um, and indeed to Manchester themselves, and yet he's allowed to go off and, and roam the globe uh, without being back in Carrington doing intensive rehab and being under the care of the Manchester United medical team. I think it says quite a lot as well about um, where discipline and authority are at this moment in time with regards to the relationship between Solskjaer and Paul Pogba. What I think is going to be very difficult 
in terms of what happens in the next three to four weeks with the transfer window, of course, opening in 13 days' time, um, is that who's going to buy Pogba, uh, especially, as you said, at the stated valuation of Manchester United? And how does that move? Um, how is that move going to work? Because we know, and we've reported this on the pod, that um, it's... Zinedine Zidane, who's pushing for Pogba's move to Real Madrid um, against very much the instinct of a recalcitrant president in Florentino Perez, um, who would rather spend the money on more creative parts of the team in terms of the front line. So getting a move as clever and as you know um, successful as Mina Raiola has been in moving his players for big money and big commission... This is a hard sell. You're talking about a guy who's only made six appearances this season, whose value is way over what his productive um, uh, appearances on the pitch represent. Um, either Manchester is going to have to bite the bullet and sell for a lower price, um, or um, Perez is going to have to be convinced by Zidane, a manager who he's waiting to sack, um, that Pogba is worth whatever the price is, in the end, that could potentially be agreed with Manchester United. So, if it's correct, if if we are to assume um, that Pogba and many people do believe that he is prolonging his absence from the Manchester United first team on the basis that he wants to move in January, then there is no guarantee for him at this moment in time that he will get the move regardless. So, for someone who's a World Cup winner, and of course this is where the problem started in 2018 when he came back from winning the World Cup with France and stated himself to Jose Mourinho as being one of the best players in the world uh, and he should be respected as such, then there is going to be a difficulty regardless of getting him a move away from Old Trafford because both the valuation of uh, his current club is high and uh, any valuation from an external club is much lower and indeed as we said the state of relations between Zidane and Perez is such that it would be a very hard sell and indeed I do believe that um, Zidane would have to um, in some way let's just say restate his um, brilliance as a coach and overtake Barcelona in, uh, in terms of being top of La Liga in order to try and force that transfer through. From one um, Manchester player to another, we have a good question here from Mwinju, who has asked Duncan about Angel Gomez, a very promising uh, young player who has made uh, some appearances already this season for the first team, but whose contract extension negotiations have stalled. And Mwinju would like us to try and shed some light on why that's the case. Yeah, Gomez is an interesting player. He, he is in the final year of his contract at Manchester United. He's just 19 years of age. He is actually the youngest um, player to play a league match for Manchester United since Duncan Edwards. Um, also the first player born in the 2000s to play in the Premier League. So he, he made his debut uh, for Manchester United in 2017. Um, so f- four seasons ago, effectively now. Um 
Manchester United want to retain the player. They have made him a contract offer. Uh, my information is that the contract offer they have made him is substantially better than that he has managed to secure from other clubs. Um, his father is doing most of uh, the representing of the player and has been using uh, this scenario in which in a few days' time, so uh, in the 1st of January, Gomez will be able to agree a pre-contract with overseas clubs uh, and in the summer he will be able to leave Manchester United um, for limited compensation because he'll be out of contract. Um, he has seen what has happened with other young players in the Premier League, uh, young uh, talents who've come through the academy and are valued by their clubs. For example, Brahim Diaz, um, who Manchester City lost to Real Madrid last January um, when Diaz was in a similar situation and when they could, uh, he and his father could secure a very high signing on fee to move to Madrid, a substantial salary and the promise of playing time there. Seen what's happened with Jaden Sancho going to Borussia Dortmund and now being regarded as a 100 million euro player who um, the top clubs or some of the top clubs in Europe are making offers for. The problem I'm told here is that Gomez's father and presumably the player himself have a higher estimation of their of his worth on the market than what suitors are prepared to pay. And Gomez is very technically good. Um, he is uh, he's a good passer of the ball. He's a very creative player. He um, has an ability about him that's admired by people within Europe. Um, he's actually the godson of uh, Nani, and there, there are certain comparisons to, um, to Nani as a player. The problem he has is he's physically very small, and the people I speak to and ask about how they rate him, will, you know, they always say, yes, technically excellent, like him, but struggle with the, the body size. And I've talked to someone who's coached Gomez, at Manchester United and he also said yes he's a good player but I question whether he can establish himself as a starting first team player because he's just too small and when you're that size and that type of player you have to be exceptionally good to get yourself into a team like Manchester United on a regular basis. So I think that's basically where it stands is that um, United would like to keep him and uh, and see how he develops. Um, he's still young, he's still a teenager, um, but he's getting to that stage where he needs to force himself into the first team. They've made him a good offer, but that offer is nowhere near what Gomez and his father believe his worth is on the market. And uh, I think Manchester United are going to have to wait to see whether their valuation proves to be the highest one and uh, whether Gomez has to give up on um, his hopes of moving elsewhere and the sort of agitation to move elsewhere and just accept that the deal on the table or something perhaps only marginally better than that is what he's going to get and uh, and he'll have to remain at the, the club he's at at present. An expectation, Duncan, of, of this particular question from our listeners because they're all, always right on the cusp of the news. Is it possible to be nanny and godfather at the same time? <laughs> a god nanny a god nanny indeed 
Speaking of God nannies, um, the uh, God nanny meister himself, Jurgen Klopp, uh, fielded uh, one of well, the youngest uh, on average team ever to play in a League Cup quarter final this week. Um, and some Liverpool fans are questioning the priorities, um, as well as other fans, has to be said, of other clubs, with regards to is the Club World Cup really more important than winning a domestic title? Um, and indeed, did he have a spread bet on the, the shirt numbers, Duncan, uh, which I think you have calculated to um, accumulate to 737 uh, on the night of the game against Aston Villa? Yeah, I, I, I think that's a quiz question waiting to happen. What's the highest cumulative shirt number fielded um, by a Premier League team in a, a senior competitive match? And I think Jurgen Klopp has taken that record by a margin with the, with the team um, he allowed to be put out last night. Obviously, he didn't coach them himself. Um, the lowest shirt number of any of those 11 starters was 51. And the highest was 99 to a grand total of 737, as you say. What do we think, though, about the the priority? I mean, I guess traditionalists would say that a domestic cup title and a game at Wembley and lifting a trophy is more important than flying to Qatar and competing in the World Club Championship. However, what we know for sure is, financially speaking, it's much more lucrative to take part in FIFA's competition than it is to take part in the EFL's competition. Yeah, look, there are people who do not regard the Club World Cup as being an important competition uh, in England in particular. I think that is, in my experience, that's a, a particularly Anglo-centric view. Um, you know, I've, I've worked around the world in football. I actually worked, covered a lot of the predecessor of the Club World Cup finals um, when I was in Japan as a journalist. Um, Japan used to, Tokyo used to host the um, Intercontinental Cup final every year where the, the champions of Europe would play the champions of South America. Uh, and that was um, developed into the current Club World Cup format um, of champion from each continent playing in this short tournament in which the South American and the European um, teams go straight into the semi-finals and it is going to become as we've talked about in the podcast a much broader tournament in 2021 it's going to be a 24 club tournament going forward with FIFA expecting to make substantial revenues from the tournament and you know a lot of political uh, discourse over how it fits into the calendar whether it's part of FIFA's attempts to take over the Champions League and uh, the the elite club football from UEFA. It's become a very important issue. But generally, my experience overseas is the Club World Cup does have proper status and uh, managers and players do want to win it. And I fully understand why Liverpool have prioritised the Club World Cup in this case. Um, from a financial perspective, it makes sense. You're talking about prize money in the millions for winning FIFA's tournament. You're talking about, um, I think, £100,000 is the prize money for winning the League Cup. Um, so not not hard to, to choose between the two from that perspective. I think, and it's not just the prize money. I think there's 
significant additional commercial opportunities from winning the Club World Cup. As one fan commenting um, on the debate yesterday said, you, you get to you get to put that patch on your strip for the year, the, the golden FIFA um, World Champions patch. And, and that obviously has, um, we did it, uh, we won it kind of uh, bragging rights status for supporters, but it also makes money for the club. You can imagine Liverpool, if they come away as they are expected to do, by winning um, this uh, title uh, this week, that they will be offering Club World Cup patches to their fans at a substantial uh, price to be added to their shirts they've already bought and to be added to shirts that are being bought perhaps as Christmas presents or, or for the rest of the season. Um, the status of being world champions is something that has significant commercial value too. So which one to prioritise? Well, it's obvious which one to prioritise. And remember, we're talking here about a manager who has dumped the League Cup most of his seasons at Liverpool anyway, because he wanted to focus, again understandably, on the league initially to qualify for the Champions League and then later in latter seasons to be competitive to try and win the, the, the Premier League and to try and win the Champions League, which of course they achieved last season. So it's not been an important trophy to Liverpool in the, in the first place. It's not an important trophy to a lot of Premier League clubs now. It's quite common for even teams who are battling relegation and their target is to remain in the Premier League to get themselves kicked out of the League Cup so they can focus on uh, Premier League games. And um, you could have argued before last summer and before this stellar start, that record-breaking start that Liverpool made to the Premier League campaign, that it would be valuable to Jurgen Klopp and valuable to Liverpool to win a domestic trophy, um, something they haven't done yet. But that argument goes out of the window once you've won the Champions League. Now, you don't need a League Cup to, to kind of assert that we're on the right path and we can win things. They've, they've asserted that they're on the path to win the Premier League, possibly to win it with a record points total. Um, so I don't think you can you can contest this decision at all. And uh, and globally, I think if, if Liverpool had done the opposite and concentrated in the League Cup or even split their squads, and as some people have been suggesting, put half their youth team into the Club World Cup and, and retain half their senior team for the for the League Cup, uh, the global game would be asking questions and saying, what are they doing? Why aren't they putting their strongest squad out for FIFA's Premier Club tournament? And of course, if they wanted to defend themselves, they could cite the precedent, Duncan, in 2000, where Manchester United infamously withdrew from the FA Cup uh, fourth round in January uh, in order to participate in said competition. And it was in Japan, wasn't it? Uh, I think it was in Brazil, wasn't it? Oh, it was in Brazil, yes. I remember everyone trotting off to the uh, Copacabana Beach. Yes, it's true, it was. Unfortunately, um, I certainly won't be going to the Copacabana Beach in the next two weeks. And um, also, the Transfer Window podcast will not be doing Wednesday editions of Your Questions Answered. I think you'll understand that we uh, uh, would like to have a little bit of a holiday on both the Christmas and New Year's Day, and we hope that you guys all enjoy that too, which means this will be the last Donkey Award of 2019, which of course makes that a significant occasion, and one which we will celebrate by not having a golden envelope, but instead I will announce the nominations with sleigh bells. There you go. 
don't say we don't uh, give you the people what they want. This uh, week's donkey uh, is going to be inspired by the new government of the United Kingdom and Boris Johnson's decision to try and legislate uh, before 2020 arrives that Brexit will get done in one year's time. The question we're asking in football is, what would be the best legislation for 2020 in football? What would be the thing, the three things, or three, in this case, nominations, uh, of um, what we'd like to get done or indeed legislate for in 2020? Uh, so here we go. I'm going to just do the, uh, the, as promised, sleigh bells rather than golden envelope, Duncan. Um, VAR, because we've talked about it a lot, obviously, in this past year and certainly these past six months. Abolish or not abolish? Should we legislate for that in 2020? Um, the second nomination is, should Serie A uh, take advice from out with Italy before they decide to embark on an anti-racism campaign. And the third one is, should Gary Neville be banned, or indeed outlawed, from speaking about Manchester United until one of his mates is not the manager of the club? Duncan, I think it's a bit of a difficult choice for this final donkey of 2019. Um, we've got a bit of politics in there, obviously. We've got a bit of VAR, and we've got a bit of well, previous with, with Gary Neville. Um, who would be your preferred nomination to receive the last donkey of the year? Yes, well, look, Valerie, our friend, uh, I think has, has made the, the case clear that um, we'd be better off without it. And it's been interesting that on the podcast, we, we've talked about the problems with VAR for a long time. And there's been a great deal of resistance um, in, I think, general, before we saw it in action in the Premier League properly, that it, it was ob the obvious thing to do and it would work. And uh, I think that sentiment's changed, switched in, in the other direction. And now the, the majority of people agree that um, it's been a bad move. Not sure everyone's in favour of abolishing, but um, I, that would be my view. Um, better to remove it completely because there's so many uh, difficulties caused by it. Serie A, yes, uh, they just don't seem to be able to to get uh, their um, their actions, uh, their statements um, correct on racism at all. And uh, it does seem like an obvious thing to do is to say, get someone from the outside to help them with it and, and do this properly um, because they are, uh, they are you know, they're damaging their game and they are damaging the the livelihoods and the um, the experience of, of playing football and supporting football for so many people over there. And then Gary Neville, um, I, th I think that that's one where he should make the law for himself, perhaps. Um, uh, do I really want to be talking about my friends being manager and, and not criticising them in any way, regardless of what they do? So since it's Christmas... I think we're going to give, for the first time, a donkey to everyone. I think all three of them oh, uh, get the award this week. Generous man, generous man. Donkeys all round. <laughs> so at the uh, transfer window Christmas party, we will be no they're putting names on all three donkeys. The Valerie, our old friend, 
uh, Serie A, and also one for Gary Neville. I don't think it's his first, to be fair, but he's always very, very grateful when he gets one through the post. So, uh, we leaves us for this moment in time to say this is the Transfer Windows Wednesday edition, um, and we have hopefully answered your questions in a way that you um, have found some information that you didn't know. Um, as always, we're grateful for those questions, as we are for your debate, which you can continue with us on our social media channels, which of course are at Transfer Podcast, that's on Twitter, on Instagram and on Facebook, as well as individually at Duncan Castles and at Garbo SJ. We will be back, of course, on Friday. Uh, to make sure that you've got all the news up to date as the transfer window looms and is about to open. And of course, it is our busy season. Uh, For the moment, we will see you on Friday. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 